And so there is the reading, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. I've titled the message today, A Nameless Woman. Now, most of us are familiar, broadly speaking, with this account of the life of Jesus, the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, let me just say that far too often, this particular story is simply looked at as another example of the miraculous nature of Jesus' ministry because he knew all about this woman even before she told him this seemingly scandalous information. Or it's about uh, someone who has this woman's evil past. She's a stained woman, a a woman with the scarlet letter, and yet even she can be forgiven of her sins. Now, those are all fine and dandy things, I guess. I'm not saying that they don't testify to some aspect of Jesus' ministry. But I am saying that this is the typical, pietistic, inward spiritual, get saved and avoid going to hell type of mentality that completely fails at understanding the basic dynamics of what's really taking place here. Let us seek to avoid that problem today. It's interesting to realize that... When Jesus had that nighttime visit from the Pharisee Nicodemus, the Hebrew scholar, now you'd have thought that would be the occasion where the Lord would declare his kingship over the nations, including over Israel, and get into some detail with this this man who would theoretically at least understand. But as we read, nothing like that took place at all. What is astounding to see is that what we've read today When he did get around to making that kind of declaration about his identity, it was to a woman, not a Hebrew scholar, and a Samaritan woman at that. And to make it even more out of the ordinary, she's a woman divorced five times, living with a man at that time to whom she's not married. As uh, Dr. Rastuni commented on this uh, passage, he said, this confounds the normal expectation. (laughs) I'm, I'm thinking that's humorous understatement. It confounds the normal expectation, and it, it, that is absolutely true. And we're going to see why. I think it might be helpful in that regard for us to go a bit further and understand this nameless woman's place in that society. Now, my intention is to dive much deeper into this aspect of it in an upcoming Sunday night study, Sunday afternoon study. It won't be today, obviously. Uh, it will be next week, and maybe, I'm not sure. But at any rate, I'm going to touch on a little bit little bit today. Here's what I mean. Any woman who was married in that society who had no dowry. Now, let's remember, we don't hear much about dowries anymore. But a dowry was in many of these ancient cultures and in some places still today here on this earth. That is a payment, such as a payment of property or money, paid by the bride's family to the groom or to his family at the time of a marriage between the man and the woman. Now, a woman in that situation who had no dowry, she could still be married in what we would call a common law marriage, I guess, but, you know, there were different stratifications in that ancient Middle Eastern society that we don't quite identify with today, but that's sort of what the, the technical term is she was a concubine. Now, in our modern usage, and whenever you hear that term, which is not that often, it's come to be misidentified with the term prostitute. 
We don't really understand what a concubine was or concubinage. Now, in our modern parlance, it might be better to understand it would be two people shacking up who might have some kind of agreement about what was what. Now, again, in that culture when, where Jesus lived, women in that society often would agree to that kind of a lower echelon type of marriage because it afforded them a certain level of security. Now, the Talmudic laws concerning divorce in those kind of relationships made it cheap and easy for a man to end that kind of non-dowried, non-endowed marriage. No man ever suffered any financial loss in divorcing a woman in that kind of situation. And therefore, it was quite simple. So her being married and divorced five times didn't carry quite the same scandal attached to it, or at least what would have been attached to it just 20 or 30 years ago in our own culture. Apparently, the man to whom she was presently attached, well, he didn't even go to the trouble of formally engaging her as a concubine. Uh, We can very well conclude, therefore, that this woman was from an economically depressed background. She apparently had no male relative cousin, brother, father, uncle, whatever, who could or would step forward to demand a dowry be paid on her behalf. That was would have been the common thing in that society. One of the reasons that the religious leaders of Jesus' day would not accept him as the king and Messiah was because of incidents like this one given to us in this passage. See, many of the Judaic Talmudic scholars had long since bought into a false idea concerning their relationship to Almighty God. They were convinced that they were the chosen of God because they were Jews. In other words, they believed that it was their race, their ethnic background, their ancestry. Those were the key factors in marking them out as special to God. And in believing that, they could not have been more mistaken. If they had simply stopped reading and understanding God's divine word in favor of their traditions, they would have known that. Here's what I mean. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, we read the Lord speaking through Moses to Israel, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Jehovah set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people. In other words, God did not choose to love the Old Covenant church, the Old Covenant nation of Israel, because of who or what they were. If you read on to verse 8 of Deuteronomy 7, it goes on to say that he set his love upon them, he chose them, he elected them for one reason and only one reason. Because he chose to do so. That was the reason. And the Lord Warned their ancestors. We heard this in the Older Testament reading a moment ago from Exodus 19. Let's hear it again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So you see in that very word from God Almighty, the if-then relationship, the, the, the conditional relationship, Israel's status as the chosen of God is based on their obeying his voice and keeping his covenant. That is what made them special, a special treasure above all people. Their faithfulness to the covenant. Now here in 
John 4, we are told straight out that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, that is an unfortunate rendition. It may be literally accurate, but it doesn't exactly describe the true situation. I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes when we are translating from one language to another, there are other things that have to be taken into consideration in terms of how a certain passage is rendered. I say it's an unfortunate translation because we know from historical records, archaeological records, other accounts that, as a matter of fact, the Jews did have dealings with the Samaritans. They bought and traded with them, for example. On the other hand, we do know that they were strictly forbidden to be friends with Samaritans or to intermarry with them. So I think the better renditions of that verse, uh, here's one from the Net Bible, the New English Translation. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan for a water to drink? And then they add this parenthesis, for Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. And then the, uh, a modern idiomatic translation, I think, gets it even more precise. Jews do not share utensils with Samaritans. So right there we have two things that marked out Jesus' encounter with this woman as very, very problematic for the Jews. Number one, he's talking to a woman who's a Samaritan. And number two, he's going to use a utensil that she would have used to drink. The Samaritans were a mixed race people. They were a product of the intermarriage between some Israelites and and some non-Israelite people. And in that day, that kind of intermarriage meant that their religious beliefs would have been impacted. And the Samaritans ended up with a distorted version of the true biblical faith. Of course, it turned out the Jews did too, but the the Samaritans had long since deviated from it even before. Now, the Bible and history record the fact that there was mutual hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And on top of that, the laws of the scribes, the Talmudic laws, strictly forbid Jewish men from having any contact with Samaritan women. And they were also forbidden, and this is where that idiomatic translation, I think, hits it on the mark. They were also forbidden to use the same utensils for eating and drinking as the Samaritans. And now we see why that woman was so surprised at Jesus speaking to her and asking her for a drink of water. Speaking to her was the first surprise. Asking for a drink of water was the other. She probably recognized him as an Israelite, either by the way he was dressed or by his accent, the way he talked. And the remarkable nature of that story, as I said earlier, apart from these dynamics that we're understanding here, is seen in the light of that previous private conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. You know, we could say that the the difference between the two is the difference as in night and day. And that's a literal fact. You ever notice sometime in the various accounts of Jesus' interaction with others, the percentage of them and the nature of those that took place at night in the dark versus those that took place in the broad daylight? I'll just let you think about that. I mean, Nicodemus was a man, first of all, not a woman, and a man who was a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. He was a man of high society and high repute. But he goes to him at night in the dark. But now here is Jesus talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that and a woman of 
low society. Jesus is the Savior of his people, and his people are not restricted to the upper echelons of Judean high society. They come from all places, even Samaria. I think in this he's giving us perhaps a lesson in evangelism. I mean, the Lord is, in fact, thirsty, being truly God and truly man. He does thirst for water. And you see here that he's taking advantage of his own need for refreshment as a means of extending the grace of God to a person, a nameless woman, that nobody, not even that woman herself, would have ever supposed would be the recipient of it. He tells her that if she really knew who he was, she would ask him for living water. Now, this is another one of these areas where people, the typical evangelical, you know, preaching on this blows right by the important facts of what's really going on here. When he says, I I would offer you living water, that's a play on words. Because there really was such a thing talked about in that culture as, quote, living water. And it meant specifically at a well like that, the water down at the very bottom of the well that bubbled up from the stream that, that serviced the well. See, on the top of that kind of a well would be the rainwater and the other water that had already bubbled up to the surface and was sitting there for days and days. So she hears this from him, and she's not quite sure about the gift of God that this stranger from Israel has offered to her. But she does know something about well water. She knows a lot about that because she apparently is the one who has to go get this day in and day out. And she sees that Jesus, in asking her for a drink, he has no bucket with a long rope that would allow him to get to the bottom of the well where the living water, the spring water, was located. So the natural question is, how is he, how are you going to get at it? Now, it's no coincidence here that she brings up the name of Jacob, who, remember, had his name changed by God Almighty to Israel. And she challenges Jesus by asking him to compare himself to the great patriarch Jacob. And this woman, in fact, is being ever more receptive to the kingdom message in this dialogue. But not by manipulation, not by trickery, but simply by the Lord's intimate knowledge of hers and ours and our sinful human condition. Now, if you look again at verses 13 to 14, you see that if this woman in her ignorance is going to challenge the divine son of God, she's going, he's going to oblige her very quickly by pointing out that, yes, as a matter of fact, he is greater than Jacob. The best Jacob could do is to dig a well that would only temporarily satisfy physical thirst. But now a greater than Jacob has come, And he offers the life-giving spiritual water. A water that is the only thing capable of quenching the desperate spiritual thirst of every sin-burdened soul. Now, you see here in verse 15 that the woman, while very interested in that kind of water, she still hasn't quite caught on to the analogy. She's missing the figurative way that Jesus is using the idea Uh, that idea of water. So she's still in the dark about the spiritual nature of the gift that he's offering her and his identity, who he really is. Now in verse 16, he tells her to go call her husband and bring him there. Now why on earth would he do that? 
just out of the blue. Now, of course, we know the story, but if you're just reading this for the first time, you've got to wonder, why would he do that? Do you think maybe he's abruptly changing the subject because he realizes that this poor, foolish Samaritan woman just isn't catching on? She's not getting it. So maybe he thinks he'll get somewhere with talking to her husband. Or maybe he's just simply tired of the fancy imagery and symbolism, and he just abruptly cuts to the chase. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Well, I think, in truth, what the Lord has done here is to show the woman her need. And in so doing, he shows all of us our need as well. Her need would not be truly awakened, ours will not be truly awakened, unless there is a sense of guilt and a conviction or awareness of our sins. See, sin is not a thorn in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah, Paul used that language, but we don't really know what he was talking about, but that's what a lot of people would think of as sin. But you see, you can pull a thorn or a splinter out of your finger or hand. Sin isn't like that. Sin is a contamination of your very soul, your very being. It's not something that can be pulled out. It can only be forgiven and cleansed by the power of God's divine grace and mercy. I, uh, I think I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating here. It comes from the days following the horrible aftermath of World War II in Europe. It seems that in the country of Denmark, the Germans had set up a headquarters uh, near a, a big lake called Lake Arezzo. And as the war was coming to an end, the Germans dumped these big boxes of ammunition and other supplies into that lake. And those waterproof boxes sat at the bottom of that lake for the better part of 45, 50 years. But then in late 1982, apparently the the Danish authorities were aware that they were there, those boxes. Two skin divers went down to the bottom of that lake to retrieve those boxes. Now, on their first dive down into that lake, something very strange happened. Somebody started shooting at them from the forest just offshore. A sniper. Now, the divers eventually recovered the ammunition boxes and It led to an investigation by the police about the the shooter, the sniper, who fired at them. And it revealed that he was a man who lived near the lake and who had been, during the war era, a Nazi sympathizer. Now, apparently that man, for reasons known best to him, wanted to keep those boxes and that information down there at the bottom of Lake Arezzo. Can you imagine the fear that that man must have carried for 40 or 50 years? What fear he must have lived in, wondering how one day to the next if he would be discovered and if he was found guilty of something that he would just as soon forget about that would have been revealed if those boxes were recovered? You can only wonder how many times a day or a week that man must have traveled to the lakeshore looking to see if anybody was down there snooping for those boxes. What a life to have to live. Well, you see, Jesus uses the story of this woman to show us that sin is like that man's problem. The only thing that would bring him peace of mind was the revealing of it and forgiveness and pardon. You see, friends, we just don't have the power to get up one day and say, well, that's it, we're done, I'm, I'm done sinning, I'm finished with it. I won't be sinning anymore starting today. That's beyond our power and ability. But not to speak of our inclination for those who are unsaved. 
Only the grace of God working in and through us can enable us to be done with sin as a way of life. Jesus knows that the best way to remind this woman of her sinful life is to here mention her husband. And just look at the effect it has on her. I mean, this woman who had been very free with her words and was quite talkative suddenly clams up. She simply blurts out, I have no husband. I have no husband. And you see there in verses 17 to 18 that Jesus knows very well the real story. He knew it all along. Now, many people, when they read of how this unfortunate woman responded to Jesus, assume that the words that follow in verses 19 through 20 are sort of a diversion. She's finally caught on to the fact that she's not dealing with an ordinary man here, so she quickly changes the subject. She moves the discussion away from her current living condition and her past onto some fine points of theology and doctrine. Look again at verses 19 and 20. The woman says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. More likely, what has happened is that this woman has finally realized she's dealing with a man who is at least a prophet, if not the prophet. And realizing that, a thought comes to her mind that was natural enough because it involved this dispute, this theology between the Jews and the Samaritans. And if the man she's talking to is some sort of prophet, he must be a Jewish-Israeli prophet. And so there follows this statement of hers. And this has to do with the Jewish-Samaritan rivalry that we've already talked about. But now in this case, the Samaritans believed that the this mountain she's referring to is where God is alone to be worshipped. Not the city of Jerusalem or the temple that is there. And the mountain is Mount Gerizim. You can read about that mountain in the book of Deuteronomy. But here in verses 21 to 24, Jesus responds to her, by once more driving home the truth of what his coming into the world would mean. The hour is coming, he tells her, when both what the Jews have believed and what the Samaritans have believed is going to be swept aside, pushed away. The new covenant has come. The old is being surpassed. The people of God Almighty are no longer tied to a strip of land like Palestine or the modern-day state of Israel, heaven forbid. And the headquarters of the true faith are no longer in the city of Jerusalem. They're certainly not in Vatican City. And the presence of God is no longer restricted to a small building like a temple or even a large mountain like Gerizim. Both the mountain and the city and the temple are all passing out of view at that point, making way for the new covenant that God is making with humanity. Now, what exactly is the hour that he's talking about here? It's a figurative reference. He doesn't mean that the 60 minutes have now come. He means the, the hour, the occasion. And it's a figurative reference to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That is the hour that changes everything. That is the seismic shift that will change forever the face, the identity, and the makeup of the people of God. Now it is no longer the promised land that God has given his people. It is the whole earth. Now those who worship him in spirit and in truth, they don't need to go to Jerusalem. All they need to do is gather together in his name and worship him. 
And now the people of God, God's chosen, are no longer one race or one tribe. Now with that the Messiah has come, a new people have been called forth, and God has made his covenant with them. Remember, God warned the Talmudic scholars, the Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to others who deserve it, who merit it. And now that the covenant age has come, God calls his new nation by the same names that he called the old covenant nation. We've already been hearing about this in our Sunday school class with Bill. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, Concerning the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The same words used to describe the Old Testament church. And what we have learned here today, friends, is that this this new nation, this chosen generation, is made up of Samaritan women and Hebrew scholars. It's made up of people from every culture and every background. But now notice verses 39 to 42. 39 to 42. This is another remarkable aspect of this passage. It shows the power of the kingdom message. Because here, despite Jesus' rejection by the Jews, and despite the half-hearted commitment on many who claim to believe in him, here are these Samaritan men, and they believe in him because of that woman's testimony, but also because of what they have seen for themselves. A massive conversion of the Samaritans, a people not to be touched, a people excluded Considered lower class, subhuman. I think we would do well to realize that Almighty God is not restricted to our institutional boundaries. He is sovereign. He works when and where He will. Yes, He certainly has ordained the normal means by which the kingdom message is to be proclaimed. He has certainly ordained that His church is plan A and there is no plan B. But I think we've seen all too well in our time, churches, even good ones, they fail, they fall into error. But the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom do not. God is ever faithful, faithful even to the nameless people of this world. Let us pray.